And I want to approach people in, in compassion and empathy and create a safe space to say, hey, it's okay to, to tell your story here because I know there's other places that aren't. Um, and you won't get rewarded for, for telling this and you might be viewed a certain way. But I think that it's so valuable for the national narrative to be able to tell about and say the names of the people who have helped you along the way. Welcome to Authentic on Air with Bruce Alexander. I am your host, Bruce Alexander. I am buzzing right now. Today's show just might be a monumental insight machine because today's guest has been referred to as a walking TED Talk. Taylor Doe is here to uncover some critical information we all may have missed in our stories. More about Taylor in a moment. First, today's reflection. What are the moments in your story that consistently get glossed over when you recount your life's turning points? Do you leave instrumental people out of your success stories or omit mistakes or indecision on your own part that could have tipped the scales in your disappointments? I will leave it to today's guest to expand further on and then moments because he is the pro. However, I want to prime your mind to reanalyze your story and truly receive this amazing information. It could unlock something huge for you. As always, I am genuinely interested and would love to hear any interesting, surprising, or revelational insights uncovered, so you can hit me up on Instagram, Facebook, Threads, or LinkedIn at Authentic Identity Management. Taylor Doe's TEDx talk has reached over 150,000 views since it was posted six months ago. Most of these were in the first week it was posted. He is a keynote speaker who uses his unique insights to create environments where people thrive. He is known as a creative entrepreneur and thought leader, a dedicated relationship and community builder. He is who, given a different set of keys and opportunities, I might have wanted to be when I grow up. Using personality, influence, and an uncommon mastery of the persuasive presentation, he helps people and aims to make the world a better place. I will keep my monologuing brief as my guest has fit me into a busy schedule, and I want to make the most out of this time. Thank you, Taylor Doe, for joining me today. Man, Bruce, thank you for that that introduction, man. That yeah. was that was top notch. I appreciate that. Well, I mean, you're doing top notch work out there, so I, you know, I want people to know who I, who I've got on here today. Man, thank you. Yeah, I was uh, had the opportunity to give a TEDx talk and about and then moments, which we'll get into today, uh, hopefully. And so just very thankful for the opportunities that have come from that. Yeah. So so now before we jump ways deep into and then moments, yeah. tell our listeners who aren't familiar with you yet, in your own words, who you are, what you spend your days doing and why you think I invited you to be a guest on the show today. Man, thank you. Uh, my name is Taylor Doe. I also go by T Doe. That's a nickname I got when I was in like the fourth or fifth grade. And it has kind of stuck with me <laughs> my entire life. Uh, there was this youth worker who came up with a nickname and it just kind of stuck. So I answer to that uh, as well. But uh, by day, I run a small tech company with my brother. Okay. So uh, he lives in Tulsa uh, with his wife and, and she just joined the team. So we... Um, run a software that helps people care for others. And so that's what I kind of do full time. And then on the side, do some speaking and some storytelling and some kind of thought leadership stuff um, that I'm, I'm really passionate about. So that's, that's kind of what I do. I got to work in schools for many years. And so I love being around young people and kind of mentorship and things like that uh, is something that I'm, that I'm really passionate about. I'm also, uh, I love Chick-fil-A, but I would say I'm a Whataburger fanatic. Oh, yeah, um, that's yeah. kind of kind of my personal brand. Yeah. Uh, you can kind of find me there. Uh, kind of hit rock bottom with that uh, in college when I started getting the employee discount. Uh, that <laughs> went so much. So I was always taking people with me. Like I didn't really go by myself. Uh, it was always taking 
taking friends. And so we would order and like go sit down at kind of the same table that I'd sit at. And they'd come out and be like, all right, well, you know, what shakes would you like tonight? My, my buddies would be like, oh, we didn't, we didn't order shakes. You know, I was like, oh, no, 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 it's okay. It's like, I'll have chocolate tonight, you know? So it was <laughs> oh like kind of getting the the treatment just because I went so much and started to get to know the employees. So I'm a Whataburger fanatic. And then maybe while I'm on the podcast, uh, maybe relational capital. Uh, we have mutual friend and Derek Sire. He was a guest. If you haven't listened to that podcast yet, you need to. It was a great Absolutely. conversation that you guys had, uh, which fired me up for kind of being on today. So uh, that was our connection for, for sitting here yeah. and being on the pod together. Well, thanks for listening to the episode because like, like you said, I think it was a pretty powerful uh, conversation and I'm glad you're fired up to be here. Yeah. Um, so you've made it your literal job to create opportunities for people who don't look like you. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Man, um, I, I grew up in a household and I, I would say I kind of have a family lineage of people who have looked out for others. So even even my grandfather, who's who's no longer here, both both of my grandpas uh, were incredibly kind and generous people who are always looking around at people around them. Um, Even my grandmother is extremely hospitable and kind and welcoming and friendly and open, open door policy, you know, at their home. So it was kind of uh, just an ethos in our family to like, hey, people are welcome here. We, We look out for people who are overlooked, all of that. And so. I would say that I had an advantage of just growing up in that environment. And so that trickled down to, to my parents as well. Like my dad's um, extremely gracious. He's super funny and witty. Like he's, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's hilarious. So he's just like great around people grew up watching him uh, doing like the church announcements every Sunday, but like just putting in little jokes and, and things like that. So even kind of aspiring to like, man, I want a mic in my hand someday. Like I love the way that he tells stories uh, in, in front of others and even at our house. And then my mom, uh, was a family practice doctor physician for for many years. She recently retired. So growing up in that household of like, we'd be out in the community and her patients would come up and be like, oh my gosh, your mom saved my life. Or your mom is, you know, the most amazing person. She's caring. She listens to me, like all these things. Yeah. And then I would see the way that she interacts with people. Like, you know, we're like, we're shopping at Walmart, you know, and she's like, stops to take time and chat with, pa- you know, patients. Mm. Or we get phone calls during dinner and someone's calling who has an emergency or has a question and, and she's taking time to, to genuinely listen to them. And so I, I would say that it, it's not necessarily me as the environment that I grew up that said, hey, we value and care about people here. Right. And so that's where I, that's where it kind of stemmed from. And I've been placed in opportunities that have allowed me to, to do that. Um, that's amazing. Um, has anybody else made? So my name is my full name is Bruce Wayne Alexander. You know who that is, right? Um, we're talking about Batman. We're talking right? about Batman. Okay. Has anybody else made the uh, the correlation between you and Batman? You're a tech company CEO <laughs> by day, okay, and you help others at night. <laughs> Whoa. Hey, I'm, I'm not going to take it that far. I wouldn't say I'm a superhero. Um, I mean, he, he's not a superhero. Okay, he's okay. a hero. He has no powers. Okay, okay, except for he's smart and he works hard to care for others. Okay. Like, I mean, I'll let you say it. I'm, I'm not going to put that in my bio, but um, that's that is the first time I can say that is the first time I've heard that that correlation. I mean, but, you said tech company, and I was like, and okay, he's doing this other work. <laughs> oh my god! There's nothing that like flashes in the sky for me to show up, so we can we can say that. Okay, okay. So, um, how do you define authentic- authenticity? Man, that is a good question. 
I would define it in, in definitely this context of um, being truthful in all areas. Mm. And so I'll, I'll just kind of keep it short in that regard. But when I, when I think of an authentic person, I think of someone who has nothing to hide. Uh, I think of humility um, because I think it, it takes a level of humility to be authentic mm-hmm. and tell your full parts of your story. And so those are those are words that that kind of come to mind when you say authentic is is humility, is truthfulness, is integrity. And so that's another reason why, like, I'm kind of drawn to your podcast. Right. It's like authentic on air, which is even kind of a level of invitation to say, hey, even when it's hard to kind of tell your story publicly, that's what this podcast is, is doing. I've created a safe space on this pod to be able to share those stories that we don't often tell. And so that's where I where I see authenticity showing up is kind of in storytelling uh, in kind of everywhere that that I go. I think that's a, you know, a nice brief definition. I like that. It's very good. Thanks. So <clears throat> we talked about our mutual friend, Derek Sire. Amazing dude. Uh, it was so good. We had to split into two episodes like and a <laughs> yeah. bonus episode. There was a lot of yes. there was a lot of content. That there. Dude can go. He can. And, yeah. you know, and a lot of people can go and you're like, would you please stop? And he's one that he just kept. Oh, I sure. kept being like, man, gems. Oh, that's so, yes. Love it. We, uh, we have those conversations over Whataburger all the time. Oh, so yeah? it's like, man, we look up, it's like, why is it 1am and we're still sitting, <laughs> you know, on, on May over here across from Target at this Whataburger, right. uh, and having great conversations. So yeah, yeah. that's awesome. For sure. So, um, we talked some on our episode about the power of storytelling. Tell me a little bit about how that ties into what you do. And I think it's almost everything I do. Mm-hmm. I love thinking about the power of storytelling. I'm, I'm, a, I would say I'm a marketing guy per se. Like I, I love, I'm just interested in marketing uh, and advertising and all, all those things. So I'm, I, I like watching ads. I like watching commercials. I like looking at billboards. I like hearing the way that businesses tell their stories. And I just have seen over the years the the power of storytelling. Like we get we get told stories as we grow up that kind of we adopt. And kind of uh, take in. And then there's also stories that we tell that we project out into the world of how people should think about us. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really fascinated about about those stories, a story that I have been fascinated with in the past decade, um, several years, at least, is the story of the American dream mm-hmm. and kind of America. Right. This this story that we've we've told and we continue to tell about how people uh, succeed in America. And in in the story behind that, where that shows up in commercials or family stories or uh, politicians or presidents or, you know, it shows up in all different areas, kind of this idea of what America is and and the story that undergirds that is what I've been really fascinated with. Interesting. What, what have you found as you dug into that? Man, I, I think the baseline is America is known for being the land of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, hey, you come or, or you're born here and, and you work hard enough. You can be whatever you want to be. It's kind of the short version of it's kind of the short story of America. Right. The land of opportunity. You can have whatever you want. You just have to work hard enough for it. Yeah, you're going to face challenges. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But this is America. You can be whatever you want to be. Well, and, and that's one side of the story. In one of your uh, in one of your presentations, you talk about keys and how the American dream is there for everyone, Mm -hmm. but it's how it's achieved is different. Tell me a little bit about keys. Yeah, for sure. And so that story has fascinated me about how we, we tell different parts of kind of the American dream and and success. The last 
decade I've got to work on the east side of Oklahoma City and, and got to move there. And so I, I get to have conversations with young people a lot about the future and, and their goals and what they want to do and, and opportunity. And also I get to have conversations because I run in kind of different networks that are similar to that in other parts of the city or kind of reflecting on my own story. And what I've noticed is that, um, you know, it, it's more than just hard work. Well, that's typically what we kind of say is kind of the quick, quick, brief answer of like, hey, how, how do I become successful? We'll just work hard. Right. Right. And then we kind of move on. And what I've found is that there's a lot more nuance to the story um, that comes into play. And so I had the opportunity to um, uh, mentor some some young men that become like nephews to me at this mm. point. Uh, but they were asking this question, like, how do people become successful? And that kind of set me on the journey to kind of explore how people get to where they're at. So I did a kind of a, a series of interviews via Zoom and in person and in phone, uh, asking people about their stories of success. And what I kind of kept her- hearing was this idea of hard work. Everyone said, man, I worked hard and, you know, I got this great and then I got this great job at, at this PR firm. And so what I kept hearing in these interviews was hard work. But there was something that was more fascinating that showed up and it was this phrase that everyone said and it was and then and we use this word to kind of transition in our stories and actually that phrase kind of disguises or kind of um kind of overshadows some of the nuance in our stories about how we get to where we're at and so what kept showing up was kind of how relationships unlocked opportunities and so i'd ask a little bit more about their story well how how did you get that job at that pr firm Oh, well, this guy that I was dating in college, his dad was the general manager at that PR firm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I I kind of say, oh, well, well, that person was a key to unlock that opportunity for you to have that job at that that PR firm. Or, oh, you know, and then I won this uh, award for this music video that I made. Uh, Well, well, how did you how did you learn how to how to make music videos, you know? Uh, well, uh, my grandma, my aunt gave me my first camera. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was kind of a, an and then moment is what I say is kind of those stories or details about how people unlock opportunity uh, is kind of hidden behind that one phrase. Right. So what do you or why do you think these pivotal moments are so often treated like bench warmers when we were, when we recount our success stories? And I, I think it's the way that we've been taught to tell our story. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. As as you kind of talk, and I know you know the power of storytelling is we kind of flex a certain muscle when we tell our story and kind of what we've grown up hearing. And when we when we get on podcast or listen to podcasts, the stories that people tell, we kind of just naturally leave out these details. I think a lot of times some of it is for like brevity or like just kind of for the sh- we don't have time to kind of really get into it. So I'm just going to hit the high points. Right. Mm-hmm. Or when we. When we win an award and, you know, they just kind of tell our, our bio of what we've succeeded in. There's not really a whole lot of time to, hey, I, I don't really have 30 minutes to tell you about all of the details. And so right. we just hit the high points. So I, I kind of give people benefit of the, the doubt in that that sense. But I also think in America, we it, it's not glamorous. There's some shame that's kind of wrapped up with the help that we've gotten along the way because of this story that we've told as America of. Hey, just work hard and you can mm-hmm. be successful. And so I'm I'm here to say, yes, you have to work hard. I'm not taking away from that. But I want to talk about the other nuance that happens in people's stories of success. And so do you think this hints at a underlying tendency to just lack self-awareness throughout our society? 
I think I think there's some of that. I also think that there is a level of shame that comes with it. So mm-hmm. the people that I interviewed kind of fall in or fell into, continue to fall into kind of the top 20% of earners in America. And, and I'm not talking about like the, the uber, uber wealthy, like people who fly private and have multiple yachts and, you right. know, all of that. I'm just talking about people who have have the good jobs, quote unquote, mm-hmm. right? People with benefits and and have PTO and can can afford a vacation and and have stuff for their children and, you know, things like that find really like value in their work. Um, and, and so what I found is that as people started sharing their stories, like really candidly with me was that there was some underlining shame that they got this help along the way. Mm. I interviewed this guy who um, had this passion to kind of work at, Cap- at on Capitol Hill in, in DC. And so he, he went to law school. He was kind of in this, these leadership roles and, uh, so he graduates and he submits a resume to the senator and his and his dad's like, hey, man, I actually know this senator. You want me to make a call? And this guy's like, no, like, I got this. Mm-hmm. Submits his resume. Crickets. Right. Right. So he's like, maybe, maybe they didn't maybe they didn't get it. You know, it's like, so mm-hmm. let, let me send this back. Right. It's like my resume is looking real good. Leadership positions, all this crickets. So he finally goes back to his dad and is like, hey, can, can you make this call? So his dad makes the call the next day. This guy gets a call. Hey, man, we're looking looking forward to uh, having you, you know, in D.C. We even want to pay you. Um, here's here's what we pay. And uh, we'd love to have you come up, you know, in, in a month from now. So he gets there and uh, gets taken out to lunch the first day by one of the, his coworkers. And they're sitting there and the guy across the table says, what's your story? Like, how'd you get here? Mm-hmm. The guy's like. Uh, what are, what are you talking about? Like, I submitted a resume and all that. And he's like, no, man, everyone has a story. Right. Right. And he's like, oh, well, my dad knows, you know, the senator from, from college and blah, blah, blah. He's like, oh, okay. And, he, you know, here's how I got here. And it, it was just matter of fact. But after the kind of later in that conversation, he's like, man, I felt, I feel kind of a little bit shameful that I didn't really earn, earn this position. Right. It's like, I, I did because I went to law school and all this, but my resume alone didn't get me in the door. And so there's kind of some shame with that, which I think causes people to not really tell those parts of the story. Mm. Um, Cause um, it, it's not glamorous because we're not taught to share about the people who have helped us along the way. Do you think it's important now that, now that you've done all this digging, uncovered all this stuff, do you think it's important to change the way we tell our stories? Oh, 1000%. I think that's the, that's what I'm going to be dedicating a significant amount of time towards. And what I talk about when I go speak and take time away from my community and my family and all that to do that. That's what I'm inviting people into mm. is authentic storytelling. Yeah. Because I think what that does is when we tell a more authentic story is it provides some light and some truth to how people get to where they're at. Yeah. So I'm talking with young people. They're not just thinking, man, if I just go out here and grind and I put in all the hours, like it's going to happen, which yes, there is a chance that that happens, but I also need you to know, I need you to continue to work hard, but I also need you to know these three people that you're looking up to have more to their story than what they've said. Right. Right. Like they're leaving out these details and you're just going off of the things that they've said or the things that they've publicly shared, but there's more to the story. And so I think when we tell our full stories of success, that actually brings, brings truth and authenticity, authenticity to the broader narrative of how people become successful in America. So there's almost like there's a cheat code that everybody who's been, you know, become successful has had and has not maybe not intentionally, but has been kind of keeping a secret. So as you know, we're talking about these young people. They're trying so hard to get there. 
and they have no idea that there's this this hidden thing. And so you're kind of pulling the pulling the drapes back on that and allowing it to get, you know, light for the entire world to see. Yeah. And and, and I want to do it in a way that's empathetic and compassionate. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like there there's there's a there's one way to approach people in another way. And I want to approach people in, in compassion and empathy and create a safe space to say, hey, it's OK to to tell your story here, because I know there's other places that aren't. Um, and you won't get rewarded for for telling this and you might be viewed a certain way. But I think that it's so valuable for the national narrative to be able to tell about and say the names of the people who have helped you along the way. Um, you know, so for me, um, you know, obviously it's my parents are are one of my and then moments. They've created so many opportunities, showed up for me in so many different ways. Um, when I they they have. Uh, could afford for me to go to college at OU. While I was there, I roomed with a guy named Daniel. Daniel's mom was senior vice president of HR at this oil company here in this energy company here in OKC. I had started kind of a campus ministry or organization at OU that she thought was cool. And she was like, Hey, you need to meet our community outreach person for the, for our company. So she made that introduction and that introduction turned into an internship, which turned into a full-time job. Wow. Right. So because of Daniel's mom, Mary, she was an and then moment for me to open up a door, to give me a key to unlock an opportunity mm-hmm. to then turn into a, a real great um, career that I loved, which allowed me to work in schools on the east side with it. So and then and then and then kept showing up in my life. So as I, as I was researching for today, I stumbled across you talking to Oklahoma City School Security Chief Waylon Cubit. OK, you guys had an you know, interesting conversation on YouTube. Yes. But he, you mentioned that you had turned down at least one previous TED talk mm-hmm. before this one. What is the and then for your TED talk? Yeah, great. Uh, the the and then for my TED talk is I know both of the organizers for TED here in oh, Oklahoma City. Okay. So uh, one of the guys' name is Brian. Brian runs a a group of entrepreneurs, uh, kind of a, a collaborative in Oklahoma City, and so I've been a part of that group for many years. Uh, and so he, that was my connection to him. And then my other buddy, David, who I think I, I don't really remember how we met, maybe through church or kind of some other networks. He's become a close friend and they were both familiar with and then moments. Uh, I've had the concept for, for a long time. Just didn't feel like it was time for me to share, uh, kind of publicly. So privately I've kind of been doing interviews and, and bouncing the idea off people and they loved it. Mm-hmm. Like, Hey man, this is, this is a Ted talk. Like, you got to share this. And so they actually invited me to do one uh, several years ago. And that was before um, I kind of I didn't want to share anything that I've learned um, for 10 years. Yeah. And so just kind of serve and show up and do that while I was on the east side of Oklahoma City. And so they actually asked me kind of in that 10 year window uh, to do a TEDx. And I was like, hey, man, it's it's not my time to speak. And so I, I, I turned that opportunity down. And then um, last year, the opportunity came back up and that was kind of outside outside the window. So felt kind of the uh, opportunity uh, feel OK in that moment and said yes to it. And that's how I had the opportunity to be on stage. So it was, it was definitely through relationships um, that that got me on the stage to be able to share that story. Ten years is a long time. What, what made you decide? That, just tell us more about 10 years. Yeah. So I actually read this book when I first started working in schools. Um, that kind of shaped me and and I don't typically read the preface of a book, uh, but in the in the preface, it was talking about the author who's done a lot of community work. And it said that uh, John uh, Perkins did 
kind of ministered and served in obscurity for a decade before anyone knew his name. Mm. And when I read that, I was like, I want to be that guy. Wow. <laughs> and so I underlined it. I underlined it, dated it and was like, OK, like this is this is a decade. Here we go. And so it just kept showing up in schools, building relationships with students and families, uh, started showing up to basketball games and football games and started getting invited to birthday parties and um, and 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 cookouts and playing dominoes and just hanging out and and doing the thing and building relationships and just learning. And so did that and continue to do that, but hit the 10 year mark and was like, OK, I feel like I have these relationships. People in my life were like pushing me at this point. You know, I was like, man, and it's time for you to share. You know, so you have this idea uh, that we think can move people and, and it's sticky and all that. So, so, so do your thing. And so kind of got that permission. And, and that's where, where I said yes to the, to the Ted talk. So during that 10 years, you were doing a, a Valentine's day project with, with some of the young boys you talked about earlier. Tell us about that. Yeah, man, that's it's actually been longer than than 10 now. So that's that started when I was a sophomore in college. OK. And so on Valentine's Day, all my buddies were like taking out their significant others on dates and I'm incredibly single, you know. Right. And so I was like, <laughs> man, what do you do on Valentine's Day? And one answer is like you go to Whataburger. Right. Uh, and so that's what we did. But while I was there, I was like, man, I want to I want to do something kind for someone tonight. So I was with one of my buddies and we went and bought. Uh, cards and chocolates and roses and delivered them to all the fast food restaurants in Norman on Valentine's day. Uh, just to say like, Hey, thank you for what you do first. But we also like, just want to say happy Valentine's day. We're thinking about you. We care about you. And that first Valentine's like, and ladies would like start crying, uh, you know, come, yeah. come out the drive through to give us hugs. You know, we start going in, giving hugs. Uh, you know, these were kind of handwritten uh, Valentine's and all that. So, that's been going on for 15 years. So we called it we called it fast food Valentine's. But before we fast forward to how that carried out, yeah. where did like that idea is it's <laughs> simply amazing. Mm. Where did that come from? Man, um, my sister, my older sister and I had have had conversations just about unique ways to care for people. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of birth from our conversation um, there. Also on campus, I started an organization that intentionally tried to serve people in unique ways. I think there's there's something about the small things that you do that I try to do every single day that will will never be seen. And I will do that. And then there's times where I think we can invite others into serving in unique ways. So for this organization that I started at OU, um, each football season, two or three home games, we would buy a whole bunch of pizza and dessert and drinks. And we would go serve that to the people who had to clean the football stadium after the football games, mm. you know, it's like we just trash the stadium right. and then it's it's pretty much temporary workers like temp workers who clean the stadium after. And so I connected with the manager and he's like, yeah, man, a lot of our people like don't have cars and and their our lunch break is at 2 a.m. And so like places are closed. And so people just like don't really eat. It was like, man, we're college students and we're up at 2 a.m. And so it was like we just ordered a bunch of pizza and, and all that. And we'd take it to the stadium and they would just like call the employees to like one of the gates. And we'd just like hang out We'd like play music. Wow. We'd like chill. We brought Uno. You know, I was like, we're just hanging out. It's like their lunch break, right? At 2 a.m. Wow. And that, so it had to be Pizza Planet, right? Yeah. Pizza, oh, yeah, the, only, yeah. the only one that's open. Right, exactly. <laughs> you already know. You already know. So we're like kind of supporting local business, all that stuff. Anyway. It's just a chance to build connection, right? Okay. Another thing we did was senior citizen prom. So we we went to the senior citizen home and we'd dress up uh, in suits and ties and the, and the ladies would dress up. And then all of the, the people who live there 
uh, would come and we'd play the best hits of the 50s and 60s and we'd dance. We'd crown a senior prom king and queen uh, every year. And so it's it just kind of unique ways to serve. And so fast food Valentine's became became one of those things. And, and over the years, it's just kind of grown, uh, built momentum. Different groups have 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 done it. We have a logo. We have branded postcards that we actually do like handwritten cards on now. Uh, and so it's it's really been cool to kind of see that grow. Do you chronicle that anywhere? Uh, yeah, we have a website. Uh, I would fastfoodvday.com. And then we're, we're on social a little bit uh, with that, just kind of sharing the story. But I, I feel like that would be a very big YouTube channel of just just following people doing that. Like, I love the yeah. videos where somebody just pulls up in the drive through and hands the person cash. And oh, they're yeah, like, yeah. oh, thank you. Because, <laughs> you know, really see somebody's day surprisingly change, not that day their whole life changed yeah. by a moment yeah and it's it's just because it's so unexpected and it's just it's completely unselfish yeah. you know that that you're doing it and yeah i, I think it's awesome so you know yeah. t- tell us a little bit more about who you're doing it with now yeah yeah so it was it was fun a quick story before that is so we when it kind of moved to oklahoma city started hitting the the kind of same spots uh we actually do it in midwest city there's kind of a strip of fast food restaurants there and for a few years, we'd see this, like some of the same people. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the years we come in when this lady, one of the ladies starts uh, like tearing up and she's like, I knew you'd be back. I knew you'd be back. like, I hoped you'd come back, mm-hmm. you know? And so it was really cool to like be able to just show up and like be expected. Cause we're never expected. Right. Like, because there's like new workers and it's like, who are, who are these people, you right. know? And, and so to be like expected and be able to show up and like, she remember us and us remember her and like, and all of that. Anyway, um, back in 2016, uh, like I said, I was working in schools and kind of had a core group of guys that I was just spending time with. Well, they found out about fast food Valentine's. And so they were like, Hey, Tito, this is our year like mm. to do this. We want to do it. And so we had to step it up a little bit. We rented tuxedos. We rented a limousine, which we hadn't done in the past. We kind of did gift baskets and roses and all that. And so I don't know if you've ever been through a drive-thru in a a limousine before. No, I have not. (laughs) So it sounds like a unique problem. It's a a unique problem that you kind of have to think ahead of like, okay, where do do we park? Because a lot of times we go in now Mm. uh, just because the guys are wearing tuxedos and and they they love dressing up. And so it's been really cool to see just like the 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 guys in the way that they compassionately care for the, the ladies that we get to give these gifts to. And so in doing that, you're, you're teaching these, these boys, these, you know, East side boys about giving. That's, that's one great thing, mm. but you're also given an opportunity to do something that they may never get to do. Mm. Wear a tuxedo and ride in a limousine. Mm. Wow. Tell me a little bit about the impact of that. Man. I, I mean, the way you feel when you dress up, <laughs> like, there's something different about it, it is. right? Like the way when you, when you wear a suit, even uh, the way you walk changes, the way you talk changes, the way you, you know, it's like, I kind of joke about it, the way you dance changes. Like we're always dancing and doing all that. Like just when you get dressed up, like the, the conversations we'd have would shift. And so I think it's a kind of a mindset thing. I think it's seeing yourself uh, in a, in a way that you don't typically. And I think that's for anybody, right? Not just for, for um, East side kids, but it was special to kind of like, to be able to do the, to be able to do the limo and do it multiple times and have the media show up. Right. So they're, they're getting interviewed on, on all the big news programs they made on the front page of the, of the Oklahoman. Right. right. And so even the, the ability to practice like being interviewed and, and sharing about 
an idea. Like there's all these kind of practice reps, things that you get to get to do with just an event like that. I want to back up and say, yeah, they are learning. They are learning about generosity and kindness and all this. Uh, but these guys were already that. Right. So I don't want to take too much credit for that. These guys are already uh, compassionate. They're extremely generous in what they give, even even in that they don't have much. Like I've learned a lot from them in the way that they give mm-hmm. uh, with with stuff that they have or, or the lack of sometimes it's like, man, why would you just you know share that? You don't even really have much of that going on right now, you know? Um, and so, I mean, one of those is one of the guys that does Valentine's DJ. He works at Cane's. Right. And so when you start off, you're not making that much money, all this stuff. And I would see the way that he would give to homeless people uh, some of his money or he'd go buy food and and do all this because that was something that was close to his heart. And so, yeah, I think I invited them to to care for people in a a unique way, but they're doing that every single day. And I would say I'm learning from them and have learned from them over the years. I mean, that that speaks to your your humility a lot, Mm -hmm. though, like, you know, your and your openness to continue your journey of learning. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's an excellent thing. Um, You talked about the conversation shifting, not only where, you know, does that tux give you a different feel? It helps you change your mindset and and see bigger things in your future. Tell me about what those conversations were like. I mean, that that's what stemmed this conversation that we're having today is, is the tuxedo, I would say. Right. Cause, cause DJ in the back of that limousine asked me the question that triggered the research that that allowed me to kind of stumble on and, and find this nuance of and then moments. Mm-hmm. So he, he asked me, he said, Tito, how, I want one of the good jobs when I get older. How do people get the good jobs? Like, how do people become successful? And in that moment, and, and I know a lot was happening, but I didn't have a, a great answer for him. And, and I know what America, the story is telling him, right? Mm-hmm. Work hard, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I couldn't say that in the moment. I knew my story was more nuanced than that. Right. And so I want to be authentic in the in the in the way that I tell him how I think people become successful. So that's really what jump started this whole thing was like, okay, I'm gonna do interviews now and interview people about their success stories and try to find some commonalities and all this so I can go back to DJ and say, Hey, here's what I found. Like let's let's have a conversation about this, mm-hmm. right? And so that was really the the birth of it was some young men in tuxedos dreaming about the future, asking about what it takes and me not having an answer that wanted to provide them an authentic answer that really jump started this whole journey. So if you have, when did you go back and start giving them that information? Mm. And I, I don't think it was a point that I like went back and like sat down as like, Chapter one, right, you know, right, right. Um, it's I have a relationship with these guys. Mm-hmm. And so uh, DJ has actually lived with me on and off throughout the years and, and his younger brother, Darius. Uh, but he he lived with me a senior year. He went to Douglas and was valedictorian and all that. He oh, lived wow. with me um, his his senior year. And so he was actually hearing these interviews as I was doing them. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm on the, I'm taking phone calls in the car. He's with, he's with me. I'm at, I'm at home uh, doing Zoom calls and he, you know, gets home, gets home from school and I'm like on a call and he'll just sit there. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he's listening to these stories. And so and, and then Jeremiah and Zamari and uh, and Cruz, like I, I have relationships with them. So I would say it's kind of an evolutionary like it, it's been a process of unpacking this together. So mm-hmm. they they have kind of seen and kind of been able to to be able to make these connections in their mind as we're going. 
And so as I'm crafting this, this story of, and then, and, and being able to do this TEDx talk, that was kind of version one. You only have 15 minutes, 16 minutes to do a TED talk. Right. right. So I, I had to cut a lot of stuff to get down to like the core of what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I took the angle of like, how do people get the good jobs? Right. There's, there's a lot of different and then moments that happen in our lives. It might not be someone who gives us a job or unlocks a door to a job, but it might be a mentor or someone who came into our life and was like, Hey man, I see this in you and and you don't even see it in yourself. And right. that unlocks something. Right. Mm-hmm. And so those are, those are also, and then moments. I just mm-hmm. didn't get to talk about that in detail in the Ted talk. I took one angle. Um, so they have kind of seen the, the evolution of the, of the content of the things that I'm finding out. And then they're watching me as I'm figuring out how to tell this to the public, right? There's certain words that I don't say that I don't want to say that I think are, are triggering or kind of a flashbang that people just shut down mm-hmm. when you start talking about certain topics. And so I've tried to be very intentional in my storytelling as I kind of walk people through how I think opportunity is unlocked, as well as what I think we as individuals can do for others. So they, they were kind of the... I don't want to say guinea pigs. They were kind of the, the prototype clients for what you do now with and then, and that's to help people and businesses convert their and then moments into success, right? Yeah, I, I would say that. I would, I would say that my target audience, I have, I have multiple audience. I have, I have multiple versions of and then, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but one that I'm really passionate about is, is people who hold the keys, like people who are, op, who hold the opportunity, who decide kind of who gets to come in, who's, who's out. Um, they're, they're the opportunity holders. And so I'm really interested in speaking with those people to try to introduce a new framework mm-hmm. uh, to say, hey, I want you to reflect on your story, because I think when we reflect on our and then moments, there's a level of humility that comes from that. Right. Because mm-hmm. it says, oh, I actually didn't do this all on my own. Yes, I worked hard. Yes, I faced challenges. Yes, I had things happen to me. But if it wasn't for Joe. Mary, these people, like I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And in my hope and what I've seen as I've kind of shared this is there's a level of humility that comes when you do that work to reflect on your story that then says, hey, because I've been given or people have unlocked doors for me, I want to unlock doors for other people who historically haven't been had those had those doors unlocked. Excellent. Um, so talking about that, that first group of people, what are some of the benefits you think that they walk away with after having worked with you? Man, I I think some of the things would be like, like I said, humility, gratitude. I mean, people get it. I've been able to, I've been fortunate to be able to do some breakout sessions and speak in, in different places and a few different cities and stuff. And and the response I'm getting has been humbling for me, even Mm -hmm. like people getting emotional about their stories, right? Like people will come up and say, man, I reflected on names that I haven't thought about in decades right like it makes me want to write a thank you card or like call or send a text or like really like just say thank you to these people and so that's been one uh one um, outcome that has has happened of sharing and then moments with different audiences is kind of that level of humility and gratitude that mm-hmm. that comes from that i think the second outcome is this this idea of action like hey i i want to unlock opportunities for others. I want to be a little bit more strategic on how I do that for more people. And so it's kind of turned into a, a strategy session where it's like, okay, well, how do we do this in your context? Cause it looks different. Right. Mm-hmm. 
you run a, an advertising agency, okay? Or, or you run a, you run a services company or you run a, a concrete company or, or whatever it might be, like your context for unlocking opportunity for people looks mm-hmm. different. And so that's, that's been another outcome from, from it, uh, from being able to share in that moment. I mean, that's absolutely great. Uh, so you tra- traverse these, you know, multiple cultures as you go through this mentoring and the, and then, and your corporate and your back of East side, you work with kids. Do you ever struggle with your identity when you're doing this? Do you ever feel fake as you're mm. moving through these different cultures? Man, I, I've tried to be authentic everywhere I go and I've actually seen the fruit from that, I think. Mm. So, I mean, this is a great question. Thank you for asking that. I think one of the things that I've seen on the East side is people come in who aren't from the East side who try to be something that they're not. And people can sniff that out pretty quickly. Right. Right. And so I think from day one, I've just always tried to be like, here's who I am. And I try to be a person who's kind and compassionate and I love to have fun. So that's also another thing where it's like, we're doing these school-wide assemblies in front of hundreds of kids each week, Derek Sire Mm -hmm. and I, and we're playing music and we're high-fiving kids as they're coming in. We're doing student of the month. We have a positive word that we're talking about. We had the hot seat crew, which was our sixth grade leadership development where we're like putting mics in their hands so they can practice Mm -hmm. public speaking and leading the school. And so I think as I was engaging with people, I was like, and this is just genuinely like who I am. Right. And so I think that has also translated into into corporate and into my personal life and even with my neighbors of who I live around. I mean, I'm being goofy at the schools, like on a mic. And then literally not even the next week, I'm wearing like a snowflake suit and emceeing the Christmas party for our corporate, you know, energy right. company. Right. Yeah. And so it's like, this is just who I am. I'm, I'm not goofy like that all the time, but that's part of who I am. It's like, I want to create environments where people have fun, also feel safe, are, are able to be their full selves. And so that has been something that hopefully I've been consistent on from even my time in high school, maybe as I became more self-aware in college of that, and then even post-college of kind of navigating these different cultures and environment of like, man, I... I think what I've learned from my parents and my grandparents is how to be a listener. Mm-hmm. And so I've always been in a place where I've like asked more questions than I've done talking. And then I, I just watch <laughs> and try to learn. And so, yeah, I, I didn't grow up in black culture. I uh, grew up in a predominantly white uh, community and graduated with mailman. <laughs> Love that's, it. that's good he, my wife told me he might knock today but he didn't yeah he didn't so i think he tried to ring the doorbell but <laughs> he saw us recording I, I, maybe our doorbell doesn't work i okay. don't know i wasn't aware of that the uh and so i i've enjoyed navigating different cultures and um so socioeconomic statuses and in all of those things i've been so fortunate to to find myself in those those rooms and i think when you're authentic good things happen I agree. Um, but the confidence to do that is not, it doesn't come so easy to everyone. Do you think that, that the comfort that you have was kind of, uh, built into you early by, you've talked a lot about your parents and your grandparents. Do you think that that is the key there? Yeah, the, that for sure. I, there's another concept that I didn't get to talk about in the, in the TEDx talk was this idea of practice reps. So 
I had it on my list. I was going to get you. Really? Yeah. Okay. 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 I, I did my research. Okay, man. You, yeah, you, you're in this, man. I love it. So, not to do. You, I can skip it. No, no, I mean, no, no. It kind of just flows. I've been right moving here. around anyway. Okay. So. Is is this idea that what what I've noticed is um, people who grow up with with safety nets kind of kind of have this uh, this this chance to have what I call low stakes practice reps. Mm-hmm. It's the ability to practice and become good or become comfortable with something without the fear of completely crashing and burning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, for example, um, I grew up in, in a neighborhood with, with semi affluent people. Like, I mean, there's doctors, lawyers, people who worked in corporate America who kind of lived in our neighborhood. So I grew up like being around people who naturally had like influence and power in the community. And so People like that didn't really intimidate me because I was just like, oh, that's that's Thomas's dad, you know. And so I had these practice reps of being around people in authority of those positions. And so when I would get around them in other environments, I wasn't as nervous when you're not as nervous. You can you're you're, you're you can be your full self and and you're not performing in a way that uh, is hindered in any in any way. So, for for example, like back to, to my story of getting that getting the job at the energy company, I got introduced to this guy named Greg, who was head of community outreach. Now I'd never met Greg before, but I'd met a thousand Gregs. Right. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I had practice reps with guys like that. Like we were almost wearing the same thing when I came in and kind of know the humor and knew where to sit and all this because I had these, these practice reps. And so I think it kind of correlates to what your kind of initial question was, was kind of this idea of authenticity is I've had these practice reps along the way to like kind of really feel out like, what's my fake self and what happens when I put my fake self out there versus here's a practice rep where I get to be authentic and here's what happens. And so I've kind of had these things over and over again that just reinforce, Hey, when you're your authentic self, like good things happen, have happened along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as well as seeing my parents be authentic and my grandparents, all of that, like you said, there has been, been that ethos in my house to in the household that I grew up to be that. So, you you know, you talked about you sat down with a thousand Greg's. You were wearing what Greg. So what about somebody who doesn't wear what a Greg yeah. wears? Does different like feels very different than a Greg. Yeah. How do you think they authentically navigate that situation and still get the still get the, the get? Yep. One thousand percent. And what I would say is I actually want to talk with Greg and not the dude coming in. Mm-hmm. So I, I think my who who I'm interested in kind of circling back is the people like Greg who have and hold the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so I want to introduce a narrative to him, a story to him to say, Hey, the, the people who might come through these doors who don't look like you or I are dressed the same way, have extreme value and will provide extreme value to your organization, to your company, to your initiative. Um, it's just not the mold in which you are used to, or maybe most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, yeah, there's there's probably some conversation that I can have with a guy who's sitting on the other side who doesn't dress the same, who might not talk the same, all that. There, there might be some of that, but I want people to be their authentic selves. And so I actually want to talk with the person who holds the key to say, hey, I want to shift your mindset and, and your your lens on how you view these things. Mm-hmm. And so that is a question where it's like. You know, what what, what would you tell these young boys to do to, to be successful? And I'm like, man. I told them to work hard. I would tell them what I was told, work hard, have fun, explore, 
be curious, ask good questions, all these things. And then I would go to these adults and say, hey, we are the you are the gatekeepers to these different opportunities. I need you to understand that there are people who have immense value who are getting looked out, looked over and left out because they don't fit this certain mold. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I want to talk to the person in in the seat who doesn't, um, you know, fit the mold per se, whatever that means. But I also want to talk to the person who's the key holder. And so, and I think that kind of goes to answer another question I had, and that was using some of your own terminology. What is like, how does socio mobility, yeah. uh, how does that mesh with authenticity? And you kind of just said that it's much less about them meshing and much more about just changing the format that, mm. that it is applied there. Mm. Right. Yeah. I think there's some meshing. I think, I think, I think it's so nuanced. I'm so fascinated with, with nuance. I think that's what I want to talk about in, 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 as I move forward in this work is there's so much nuance to people's stories. There's so much nuance to company culture. There's so much nuance to organizational structure uh, in, in how people get to where they're at. And that's what I want to have the conversation about. And so as I'm listening to these kind of national narratives that are, that are playing out in both the political and both kind of the entrepreneur grind, you know, mentality is there's so much nuance to every single conversation that's happening. Mm -hmm. Right. And I want to be the person who has time and takes time to slow people down and ask those nuanced, nuanced questions that allow them to share kind of the more truthful story. And so that's that's kind of where I would say I'm I'm sitting and kind of moving towards is, yes, there's there's a meshing. Yes, there's kind of a, a complete change that needs to happen in certain environments. But I'm more fascinated with the nuance and how that gets played out. I've often said, not so much on this show, but just in my life, that whenever it comes to conversations of equity and opportunity and uh, justice and whatever, that men like yourself, white men of any sort of affluence, are the silver bullet. Mm. So you taking on this yoke of trying to change the system, mm. I think is it's so important because I can be angry, irritated, frustrated all day at the system, and people don't want to hear it from me mm. because. They, because they don't understand. You can't understand what I've been through. You, on the other hand, you're looking at the system and you can just see the flaw and explaining that to somebody who does look like you, who does. It's like, well, you've lived my same experience and you see it. Maybe I'm not looking at it right. And it, it completely changes the, the perspective of the conversation. It's not about anger anymore. It's about efficiency. It's about uh, functionality. And that I think it's, it's such an important way to, to have that conversation to actually make change. Mm. I think I think one of my prayers have been one one of my prayers not I think one of my prayers for many many years has been to I, I want to be relevant in the streets and on the golf course. Mm. And so I want to be able to translate and in, 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 in communicate in both of those environments, yeah. right? And so I've been I've been fortunate to be in both of those environments and kind of translate between the two. And I think Derek Sire does this amazingly well mm -hmm. is he, he's a cultural translator. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I want to be like that. Uh, and it's something that I strive for. And we have a lot of conversation around that of uh, sometimes two cultures, multiple cultures miss each other on different things because that, that translator isn't there uh, on, on kind of both sides, but I want to be relevant when I'm talking with, with my guys on the East side, as well as I want to be relevant when I'm on, seven 
with a business owner and, you know, multimillionaire who wants to do good, doesn't doesn't understand or doesn't understand why people aren't working hard and and, and doing these things that I can that I can empathetically storytell that unlocks some new knowledge for that person. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a kind of a guiding thing for me as I've navigated multiple cultures and classes is I want to be that voice in the room um, that people ask, well, what does Tito think about this? You know, and and I've been very fortunate to find myself in the last few years being able to do that. And I think that's amazing. Um, I think that you're I think that you're doing it like, you know, to you. have an opportunity like a TED talk and to, you know, to put this out there on the level. And I, and I think that you did a pretty good job of condensing what could have been a two hour long presentation <laughs> into 15 minutes. And, and I I've definitely felt the power of what was there. Mm. Like I enjoyed watching it. It was interesting, um, but it was also persuasive. Well, you know, you. Luck, unfortunately, I'm not the one who holds the keys. Like <laughs> the only key I hold is to my front door to coming into yeah. the studio, which hopefully this will be a, a platform of change and it will, sure. you know, provide healing and growth for people yeah. right now. You know, it's just a thing that I'm doing. And but, I, but let me let me push back on you a little bit, because mm-hmm. I, I do think you hold more keys than what you think. OK. And I think that's something that I have found is that some people underestimate how many keys they have. And, and and maybe I maybe I just do a, not a great job of explaining what that might be. But um, I, I think you have more connections. I think that keys and and then moments um, are the way that we speak with people. Right. Um, the, the way that you are investing in, in the lives of young people, maybe maybe even, um, you know, the, the people in the neighborhood or, or your family or even your friends or your friends, kids or whatever that might be. I think you can be keys for people outside of unlocking like economic opportunity there's other forms of and then and doing that and that's speaking encouragement over people that's this podcast could be an and then moment for someone right it's like man i listened to episode 32 and it literally changed the way that i thought about the world like Mm -hmm. i thought i wanted to be uh i thought i wanted to be an engineer and now i'm doing this Mm -hmm. because i listen to the podcast right that's a key yeah absolutely like you are putting keys out into the world for people to pick up and so i think you have a lot more keys um, than than what you might initially say, mm. and um, the the relationships that you are going to be building through this podcast are going to be even more. Right. And so what I say is that I think opportunity is compounding in America. Mm. That as you move through different doors, you kind of gain these more more you gain more keys. Mm-hmm. You don't lose them, but we live in a society that feels like you can lose them. So people start hoarding their keys and kind of you know like covering them up, not sharing them, keeping them to themselves or kind of their small group. When in actuality, when, when your kid joins a competitive softball league uh, or team and you're sitting in the stands with other parents, those are keys, right? You're building relationships with, with new people and new networks that can unlock opportunity for other people. So I think it's the way that we kind of view our world as we move around is we are gaining new keys. And the hope is that as we give out more keys, we continue to gain them. I think that's how I want to live my life. Right. I, I don't want to live my life in a way that I'm, I'm hoarding things and I'm hoarding keys and relationships and ideas and all that. I want to be someone who's known as, as being generous in, in offering these keys to the people that I meet. Uh, I mean, and I definitely think you are being generous. It sounds like for maybe 10 years you were, you were hoarding a little bit, but you were just gaining legitimacy. And I think that that, was a really special thing to do, yeah. especially, you know, going into the East side and now speaking 
on behalf of a, of a people that, that you, you know, that isn't necessarily your own, yeah. but you're doing an amazing thing and doing it. And if you'd have just come in and done that, like after spending 30 days, then mm. you wouldn't have actually understood, like you talked about the nuance for sure. And there is, I think you understand East side culture better than I do. Mm. You know, I'm black, but I don't live in the East side. I've never lived on the East side. Yeah. I've worked over there. Some, you know, been over there, eat, beaten over there. Uh, but I, I'm not entrenched in it. So you have a really good understanding of that. And I think that is really the fact that you did your research mm. is going to serve you so, so well as you move through this next phase. Um, your presentation was really good. Mm. You talked some about your dad being a natural presenter and you saying because of the way he was, I want a mic in my hand at some point. What else happened between then and now? to make that skill really flourish? Uh, I can take you back to fifth grade. Okay. So let's go. The, the, <laughs> I think it, it started in multiple ways. I, I remember, and I think there's a picture of me. We had this, like, uh, it's actually before fifth grade. This, this story actually just, you jog my memory. So both of my grandpa, grand, grandfathers were pastors. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so naturally I just think like, that has kind of been in our family of, of communicators in that, in that regard. But I remember we got this little toy that was a microphone and it was like a tape player. And so you could like kind of a karaoke machine that it wasn't that, but it was kind of like that. And I remember setting up, uh, we had these cardboard brick things and I set them up as chairs and I put stuffed animals in there. And then I was on the mic, right. As a young kid, like preaching or speaking to my audience. Mm-hmm. And so um, I can remember kind of that being the first thing, like, man, hearing your voice through like a, a speaker is really interesting. Right. right? And, and so just kind of being, being drawn to that a little bit and then having the opportunity to, to do school announcements in elementary school, something as small as like, all I did was say what was in the cafeteria for lunch. Right. Mm-hmm. We have corn dog. Uh, we got corn dogs, we got ketchup, we got brownies and we have green stuff bar, the salad, right? right. And milk. And even with that was like, man, this is a practice rep for me, like speaking into something and for other people to hear it. Yeah. And so what the, the story I was originally going to tell was there's this, there's this initiative, probably international at this point called see you at the pole. Mm-hmm. And essentially it's a group of uh, people or students who meet at the flagpole uh, once, once a year, maybe. And they do like a little program and a prayer and all that. Well, my fifth grade year, the last year at the elementary school, I led that initiative. Mm. Well, my dad helped me craft the script for that morning. Um, he was the one who who came and helped set up the little we had this little like guitar amp thing with a, with a microphone. And so we set that up and we had the script. And so I did the intro and then turned it over to my friend Kate, who then turned it over to Jeff. And then I came back on the mic, like even learning at that young age of a practice rep of like, how do you do an assembly essentially? Right. And so fast forward um, to high school was on in student council. So was able to kind of lead in that regard. And then college started that, that campus organization where I got to lead in that, that way. And then kind of last thing I got, got that job through a relationship at that energy company and they paid me to be in schools on the East side. And guess what? We we're doing school wide assemblies. Mm. So I had the, I knew how to create a script, uh, a run of show, for for the morning hey we have 28 minutes to do an assembly with a two-minute close and all this like how are we gonna script this out 
And I didn't really think about it until you reflect. I was like, I did this when I was in fifth grade right? for a see you at the pole thing. Mm. And so then that makes me think, how many of these practice reps and environments can we put young people in to get those practice reps? And so that's why we created the hot seat crew. The The hot seat was the assemblies that we do. Mm-hmm. We created the hot seat crew. And that was our sixth graders. It's like, here's a mic. Here's how we do the scripts. Here's your responsibility. Here's how we high five kids. Like, and we've seen a few of those students go on and like become public speakers and lead in certain ways. And then there's others who are like, I hate doing that. Right. right. There's, there's some of this where you like exploring, mm-hmm. right. It's like, man, I actually don't enjoy doing this. And so then that's time for another opportunity to, for you, another practice rep for you to explore something different. So that that's kind of the long winded version of how I kind of found my passion to be able to, to storytell in a more public way, even though I do it a lot privately. Um, there is a desire to like, I, I enjoy crafting stories from, from a stage, not, not for the limelight, but I just love the ability to spread an idea to multiple people at once. So I mean, I, I'm one, I'm somebody who enjoys the same thing, but occasionally, you know, imposter syndrome creeps in and I'm like, why am I up here talking <laughs> to these people? Why should they listen to me? Everybody knows that I'm just a person who has no idea what's going on either. <laughs> is the fact that you've been doing it from such an early age so often, does that mitigate that some, or is it still there for you? I would say it mitigates it a lot. Mm. And yeah, of course, I think imposter syndrome shows up in a lot of different ways. Uh, I think it affects people differently, but uh, I've always been naturally a, a an optimistic person. And so I think that has that has helped in in kind of my self-confidence a little bit of saying, OK, like the self-talk I do is pretty positive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's happening in my head. Right. Um, that I try to push back that imposter syndrome. Right. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is a unique idea. You know, this is something that you you can look back and I can think of positive conversations that I've had that I try to channel before I get up that help me kind of mitigate that imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And so those are some of my strategies. I'm not a professional on knowing how to how to mitigate or become, you know, kind of overcoming imposter syndrome. I'm sure you could have someone on the podcast who does that. But mm-hmm. that's just kind of my little hack of over the years of kind of positive self-talk that says, hey, you've got some wins along the way um, that you you can do this. You know, all of that. Those were some of the things that I was telling myself before the TEDx talk was, hey, this is a unique idea. You've already practiced it with friends and family. They love it. Um, you're going out here to a crowd that is kind of home field advantage. I'm in Oklahoma City, have a lot of friends here. Um, so go do your thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And then stepped out there and hopefully delivered a, a, a powerful talk. Yeah, so definitely did. Um, do you have any other tips just for Fred, like just for presenting for people who either don't feel like they're great at it or don't like yeah. it? So some of my things I was actually just thinking about this the other day was mitigate the unknowns. So I think the, what can provide some anxiety as a speaker is the unknowns. Mm -hmm. And so I do things that I I prep in private so that when I'm in public, I am ready to go. Mm -hmm. Right. And so last week uh, I just got a new speaker bag. I bought a bag that I carry. Right. So I've been carrying this backpack um, I'm finding myself in myself in like more corporate environments and in settings. So I bought this pretty nice briefcase. Right. Mm-hmm. And I have a checklist of things that I pack for every single one of my speaking engagements. One are like extra 
uh, adapters for my iPad because uh, I take an HDMI cable. I have a backup like pocket projector in case the projector goes out. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, it's like I know what, how many keys I am taking because I give out these kind of brass keys. All, all of these things. I have a list. There's probably 20 things that I take. Uh, and that mitigates the unknown for me and provides me a level of peace that if something goes wrong, I have a backup mm-hmm. and I know what's going to happen. And the other thing is I ask good questions going in, right? Like um, I ask who's going to be in the room. There's kind of some pre-call, you know, discovery call that you do with a client uh, before I go speak to ask all those questions, age range, who's going to be in the room, you know, status of like, are we talking to managers? Are we talking to like executive leadership? Are we talking to entry-level employees? You know, that's going to dictate what I say. So trying to mitigate the unknown will bring you a lot of peace before you go into the space. Last thing I'll mention is I got to uh, travel this past summer with a, with a company. They do these sales summits around the country. And so I was doing a breakout for them. Well, each city was a different environment uh, that I was speaking in, different room. Mm-hmm. And so I got there the night before and I would actually go to the room uh, where I was speaking, the ballroom or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I would I would look at the room. Right. And and see, OK, these are circular tables this time. They're they're eight tops. So there's eight, eight seats around. So when I count out my cards um, that I'm going to put on each table, I do that the night before. So I'm not doing it the, the morning of right before. So I, like I said, I do a lot of prep in private that mitigate any anxiety in the morning that would come from that. Absolutely. So that, that would be one of my my tips and or hacks is over over prepare, especially in the early days as you're getting these early opportunities um, to speak and kind of practice your craft is to over prepare in private. Mm-hmm. In coaching authentic- authenticity at work, that is something that I would cover is that preparing, knowing the information, like being comfortable with it, not just, you know, it's like, I'm pretty sure I got it. Know it, like absolutely <laughs> know it. So there's, that's not a doubt that you have whenever you step um, on stage. For sure. There's so many other factors that are happening in the room. I want to be so comfortable with my content that I can be in tune with the audience. Absolutely. Right. So there's that hack where it's like, I never give a talk for the first time when I'm standing in front of people. Like you don't know how many times I've gone through my slides. I'm a very slide heavy speaker. I'm a, I'm a visual storyteller. Mm. Like when I tell the story of fast food, like you're seeing fast food Valentine's, you're seeing pictures of us doing that. Right. right? As I'm talking. And, And so I have given this talk in my head. I've spoken it out loud. I've done it before I get on stage. And that's another thing that I feel more comfortable with my content, which allows me to then connect with the room. So I can see where people are like, hmm, or like shaking their head in certain spots. So I'm making mental notes as I'm speaking to say, okay, this resonated, or I need to sit here longer than what I did because people are connecting with that. Or I can tell people are checking out during this spot. So I need to change something. Absolutely. You're not able to do that as a speaker. If you don't know your content, mm-hmm. you're so worried about the next slide and what you're going to say and the story that you're going to tell that you're not, you're, you don't have the capacity in your mind to be in tune with the room. Absolutely. And, and that came up uh, during these breakouts that I did for that company was like, people are getting emotional in different uh, parts of the room, like at different tables. And if I wasn't in tune, like if I didn't know my content enough and I was just trying to go through this, I wouldn't have spotted that out enough to be able to slow down. Mm -hmm. And so I needed to slow down and create a little bit more space for those people in the room. And like I said, if I, if I didn't know my content, like I do, I probably could have missed that. 
and not had that level of connection with with the audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could have missed a conversion for sure. You know, whatever the conversion you're looking to make is that that right there is the the potential for it. Yep. Um, speaking of getting emotional, when you made your TED talk, there was a there was a moment, maybe maybe two moments oh, in which a thousand moments <laughs> in which it was obvious that yeah. you were starting to yeah it was starting to get to you as you were talking about the content that's so close to your heart. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? For sure. Uh, I think I tear up every single time I speak still. <laughs> so uh, in, in probably almost every podcast, but it's still, it, it is something that I'm still so passionate about and I, and it hasn't gotten old to me and any of that. And so I think it's something that as people tell their authentic stories, there's a level of emotion and emotional connection that happens that I'm just an emotional person in general. I'll, I'll tear up. I'll cry at commercials, right? You, you catch me, you, you catch me with the right commercial. I'm like, I'm done. Right. And, and so I'm not, I don't try to hide that or anything. And so as people share their stories, like I'm, I get emotional as they get emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the Ted talk, dude, I was on the cusp. Like, I mean, you'll hear my voice crack, I think two or three times in that, uh, in, in a way that's like, I'm, that's me like choking back tears. Uh, one, this is me there's a lot of emotion behind that, that, that Ted talk, because that was my first time publicly sharing in that big of a way. Right. right? So there's, there was a lot of emotion around that. The other thing that was tr- like triggering that uh, emotion was the, the ahums or the amens in the room. Mm. And, and so people validating their agreement with what was, was being said, like, you're, you're kind of taking me back to that, <laughs> that moment right now. Uh, validating some of these ideas and, and especially from people that I like want to honor the most in the room. And so those were, those were things, you know, it was like one of my good friends, Lee could hear him in the back. All right, Tito. All right, Tito, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, sorry. And so having those people in the room meant so much to me that, that TEDx talk would not have been if, if the, those people weren't in the room that day, mm-hmm. like there was a shift in the room. Um, that I felt in it 1000% was based on the audience. Mm. Oh, a thousand percent. So besides the people, you know, those people that you knew, mm-hmm. who else was in the room? Like who came to this, TED, this TEDx talk? Man, I mean, one, my, my family's there. Uh, so having them, I told them don't sit in my, my, <laughs> my site. Like I cannot see you during in the sides or the yes, back. <laughs> exactly. And so then the night before we actually got to get up on stage and kind of see what the room was like, we had the mic, you know, once again, practice rep, Hey, this is what your voice is going to sound like. This is where the confidence monitor is all this stuff. So I knew what I was going to be able to see and what I couldn't. So I was like, my mom asked me, Hey, where, where do you want us? And I was like, I need you all over here, you know? And so, uh, Damarion was there who uh, I talk about, uh, I had, um, a mother that I'm very close with, uh, her family. She actually works at a kind of a, a cell phone shop on the East side and knew that she wasn't going to be able to get off. Like her employer wouldn't let her get off or something like this. Mm-hmm. So she said that she was going to uh, a doctor's appointment. And, and so half of that breaks my heart of like, you, man, you work at a job that's just like, so there's no flexibility at all that you can't even take a lunch break to come to this, right? That you, this was so important for you that you were going to make a way to be there. Mm-hmm. So having her there was super, super big. There was another multiple families, um, kind of support me. And then other people that I've just been doing the work with for a long time. So they like know my heart. Right. Mm-hmm. And so having those people who kind of genuinely know me was so impactful to have, have there. So I, I would say I had an unfair advantage. It felt like home court, 
uh, being able to do that, that TEDx talk. So that energy was there and you kind of see that through the, through the video a little bit. So I I was so thankful. It was such an amazing day. I got off the, off the stage and I started like weeping. Like that's when all the emotion hit, like Mm -hmm. that I was holding back. And so the, the guy who I didn't know was taking my mic off. He's like, you okay, man. (laughs) And I'm just like, you know, I'm crying and, and getting off the stage and kind of taking the, the side hallway. But it was it was amazing, dude. So were those tears just the the accumulation of being able to have that engagement and share this important this thing that's so important to you with so many people? Is that, is that just hitting you? Yeah, that, that was hitting me. It was uh, my grandfather had passed away and I was still wrestling with that. I got to tell part of his story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were people in the room who, you know, I'm, I'm trying to honor and if and, and I was getting real time feedback from that. And so that. Mm-hmm. Um, was hitting me um, just the emotional re- release of being done after doing a TEDx talk, right? right? Like there's some of that where like your shoulders just drop and you're like, man, I've been thinking about this for months and, and crafting this talk for months and now it's done. And so some of that definitely played into it. So that's kind of the, the behind the scenes of, of the TED experience. I haven't really got to talk about that much, but yeah. uh, that's, that's really, really what it was. I'm really fascinated with the whole TED Talk experience. You know, I spent some time as a public educator for the fire department. Really enjoy. I enjoyed that part of the job. It was it was really enriching to me. So the idea of doing it on that level is really interesting to me. And so hearing your take of all of it is, you know, I think is really interesting. But I won't go too deep into it because I'm kind of a nerd about it. (laughs) I, I love hearing that. That might be for another another episode. But I would I would love to. If you'd be willing, I'd love to hear a few of your and then moments. Sure. Maybe some some people that you can kind of think back on. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize this, but as I've been doing this podcast, I've been kind of digging through some of those and then moments because they're people that I'm calling to come on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my most recent ones was was Derek having the conversations with him. You know, we uh, I met him for the fire department, you know, thinking that we were going to work together on this thing didn't work out, but I really wanted to have him in my circle because he just, just his attitude and everything. And he was totally good with that. And whenever we sat down, we, we, he's like, what can I, what can I do for you? How can I help you? And just having somebody ask me that for one was, that was an and then moment. It was like, I've never had somebody ask me that. And just, you know, with no, totally genuine i was like i just want to i want to learn from your failures i want to i want to you are doing something that i want to do you started your own business you support your family yes. you, you're doing what i want to do but i, I want to get there faster can you tell me what went wrong and how to avoid that and he's like yeah we can talk about that so we sat down for two hours on two separate occasions and just talked about failures Love it. And he was, you know, super vulnerable with me. And that was that was a big moment for getting to this place right now. Um, I'm still working on this phase, obviously. But before that, Peter Evans was another and then moment. And he's in, you know, Peter, Peter's going to be on tomorrow. Um, So I'm recording with him tomorrow. And he was as I had started my fundraising journey uh, for the nonprofit I was managing for the fire department. Early on, I met with him and he put faith in me and said, I believe in you. And I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing yet. And he's like, you're going to do you're going to do great at this. And I believe in you and I'm willing to put whatever I can into it to help you. And that was a huge moment, even though the I thought I would end up doing that for so long. It didn't work out that way. It helped me grow so much in believing 
that I am somebody, yes. you know, even if I don't know exactly what that is yet, I am, I am going to be somebody and I'm going to, I'm good enough as is when I was working in a world where everybody told me that I wasn't, it was, it was that, a huge moment. Yes. And, and, and even that man is like so powerful. I mean, just even hearing the way you say that, like Peter being an and then moment, just by the words he chose to use in that in that moment and kept showing up. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and said, hey, I'll leverage my relationships and yeah. any of the knowledge I have. That's definitely an and then moment. He didn't get you a job. No. That, that's right. Like, that's not that that's not that key that we kind of talk about. He gave you another key in the sense of encouragement, empowerment, all of that. He did actually try to um, he got the Southern Chamber to offer me a board seat. And that was my first opportunity to do that. And I, I had to turn it down because the fire department told me I wasn't ready for it. Mm. Even though, once again, he saw it in me. I was doing everything in, in my mind to be able to do that. But because I was not a good fit with the team yet, I needed to focus on working with my team gotcha. who did not want to work with me. <laughs> so, you know, once again, it wasn't it wasn't the right season for that. But the fact that he set up that opportunity made me have a massive growth and belief in myself. Yeah. Another and then moment was my neighbor who lived across the street, Regan Shorter. She was uh, on, I recorded with her earlier this week, and that episode will be out uh, probably the week before this one. So um, she, she never said anything explicitly. She was a creative who, as I was going to school, doing photography, learning graphic design, I'd ask her questions and she would volunteer her time. I, you know, had to do... Um, a photography like a photo shoot with somebody I didn't know that well and I chose her and she was totally she offered her time up was really free and just so supportive and then from then on I went to every like to her with everything I could think of and she always (laughs) showed up and was always you know so giving and she you know she's a content creator and she gave me she gave me this light stand she gave me a couple other things that were for you know content creation and I, at the time I had no idea. I, it was a bunch of just tiny little things that whenever I was writing the script for the show, I was like, holy crap, she's, she's an and then moment. And she is, I did not realize that outside of my own family, she has invested the most time out of anybody that I know in me being more successful. I was like, and I, I have totally glossed over this person as a, as a, a monumental moment in my story. I was. It just, I mean, this show, I hope it's, you know, is valuable for other people. But for me, it has been so valuable already in, in really highlighting important moments in my story and giving myself, not just myself, but the others a chance to hear that how I appreciate them. In the intro, I try to let them know, like, hey, this is how you affected me. This is, you know, this is what you did to change my life. And I, you know, I want people to hear that because a lot of times, those and the moments are they go unpraised. And I don't want that for the people who've been who've changed the momentum of my life. And, and that's been the fascinating thing as of as I've got to share this idea. Is I, I never have enough time, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, you have a 50 minute keynote, you have a you know 75 minute breakout, 90 minute, whatever it might be. Is like as you start unpacking these things, and you just said it like I hadn't even you said, I hadn't even thought about the weight and, and, you know, it was like how much influence 
you start unpacking those things and it just starts to unravel, mm-hmm. right? Like yarn, you have, you have yarn up on the, on the thing right here. Yeah. It's literally like that, right? It's like mm-hmm. unpack. Well, how did I meet her? Right. Oh, I was at school. Well, how did I get there? Right. Oh, mm-hmm. well I got, I got a car and my parents might've helped me or I, or I worked, but I worked for this guy. You know, it's like you start unraveling your story and, and it's hard to do that in a setting where it's like a keynote or mm-hmm. like a short breakout. Like people can identify one or two people pretty quickly. But what I'm really inviting people to do is say, hey, take some time and actually start unraveling this. And, and you'll see how many people have shown up, you know, across the board in, in different ways that you, you might have not seen before we had this conversation. Absolutely. So what, what I'll say in, in encouragement to you, bro, like the average podcast produces like two episodes. Really? Have, you, have you seen this research? No. Yeah. The average podcast uh, globally makes like two episodes. What? Yeah, you have to look this up. And and so you are just you're like killing the game. You're in like the top. I don't know what percentage. I'm not going to quote it on here. Right. You'll, you'll be able to find it. But bro, you you already done it. I never would have guessed. Yes. And and I've talked. So I had a Regina Joy. You yeah. know you know her as well. Yep. I had her on, and she she had not started doing her podcast yet. She you know she it's out now. Yes. But. I was I was concerned that she was going to be a person who, despite being so capable at everything, she was going to let the doing it get in the way. It's like podcast, you just do it. Yeah, you know, it's if you put it out there and hopefully people are going to enjoy it. But if you don't do it, then it's never going to be out there. And so for me, it was my me and my wife had a conversation. We were trying to figure out how to like take my business out to the next level. And she had she kind of mentioned podcasting, and then once we decided on it. Three days later, I was recording my first episode. Yeah. And it's just because it felt like a natural fit. Everybody I've talked to says that that it's it's a good fit for me. Yeah. I really enjoy it. Like I really enjoy deep conversations. I really enjoy helping people. It's combining so many of the like I like tech. I like being a producer. Like I like all this stuff. Yeah. So I feel like I you know, God has kind of put everything in order for me and prepared me for this situation. Yeah. And I feel like I'm finally, like I told Derek, I feel like I'm finally living the moment. I'm like, I'm actually here and I'm saying like, I feel like I'm actually, I'm doing the thing right now. <laughs> the thing that I'm going to talk about in 10 years that I did, I, I realize it's happening. Yeah. I've never been, I've never been that before. Yep. So, I mean, hearing yeah. that <laughs> two well, episodes. And, is and, and what I would say is, and, and encourage in more out of a, a nerdy way is to document these and then moments along the way. Mm. I think it's easier to document them as you're going, then try to reflect one. I just have a terrible memory. So, um, all the, all these speaking things that I'm doing, uh, I have this kind of spreadsheet database thing that I'm keeping up of all these different, uh, kind of data points that I'm tracking in there, right? The name of the organization, the event, how many people did I give out keys? Did I not, did we do a worksheet? Not nah, all these things. I have a column in there on how I met them, like how, how the deal came. Mm. Right. So I'm able to look back when someone comes to me, and says, man, how did you, how'd you do this? How'd you make this money? How'd you grow the speaking business? How do you do all this? I'm able to go back and say, here is the blueprint. Mm. I knew Sasha because I went to college with her. We had a few classes and then she worked at this big company in the training and development department, heard my Ted talk and was like, Hey, you need to come speak for us. Mm. And that was my first big paid gig was through a college friend. Wow. Right. Like 
I will not be the person who's like, man, I did it all on my own. I'm out here grinding and which, mm. which I'm working hard. Right. Right. But I ain't doing this on my own. I'm not, I'm not even on this podcast on my own. Mm -hmm. Derek Sire was like, Hey, you should have, have Tito come on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And you decided, you know, I was like, Oh, okay. That, that's a cool idea. Shot me the message. And that's why we're here. Mm -hmm. So that's in my, I keep a list of podcasts as well too. That's in my podcast notes. How many podcasts have you done so far? And I mean, I don't know. <laughs> More Small than 10. Info, maybe 10. <laughs> not that many. So I'm I'm still new to this game too. I mean, I, I've co-hosted I've co-hosted a podcast, probably twenty episodes of of one. Okay, um, and it, it wasn't my podcast, just co-hosted, and then I've probably been interviewed on fifteen to twenty total podcasts. On wow, it. that's I mean that that's to so, me sounds like a lot. I haven't yeah. been on any other podcast, so yeah. I mean, you're you're a good guest. Well, so thank you. <laughs> I, hopefully, if you enjoy doing it, you can do lots more, and you know, lots of people will hear. What you have to share. Cool. Um, I'm going to be respectful of your time and start to wrap up here because yeah. we're, we're almost at the end. Sweet. Um, is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you want to share? And uh, one would be, I love what you're doing. I think uh, authentic on air, just having authentic authenticity in the title, like speaks a lot about you mm -hmm. and what you're kind of going for. And so when, when Derek kind of, told me about it. I was like, Oh yeah. Like I can already tell I'm going to be in line with this dude because he's about authentic storytelling. So I think the thing for, for listeners that I leave with is like process your story and, and tell, tell the details. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want my, I, I don't have any children yet, uh, but I don't, I don't want my kids thinking that I did it all alone. Mm -hmm. And so my challenge would be, Hey, as you're even telling your family story, of how you got to where you're at, let your kids know the names of people who have helped you along the way. Like, right. like that's important. And if you watch, if you happen to watch the TEDx talk, I, I do talk about one of my grandpa's and then moments. Mm -hmm. and, and he never said the name of the person. Like I did, I did this research now. He wasn't intentionally leaving that out. Right. Uh, it was just the way that we've been kind of taught to tell, yeah, to yeah. tell our stories. And so this is me inviting your listeners to say, hey, as you're telling your story to your kids of success or what you've done, like make sure you're telling them the details mm. and that they know the names of the people who have helped you along the way. That's amazing. So if people want to learn more about Taylor Doe, where can they find you? And I'm on I'm on social media I'm trying to post a little bit more. Uh, that's kind of the next phase of storytelling for me it would mm. be on on the Internet done a lot just in person and through relationships over the years. So figuring out that on social media, but just Tito on Instagram and then have a website and then moments.com mm -hmm. uh, is another way to, if you want to have a continued conversation or I love just hearing people's and then moments. So if you've heard this episode and want to share about a person who has impacted your life, you can, you can hit me through the website and shoot me a message. I love hearing those stories. So awesome. Taylor, it has been an absolute pleasure. I mean, this conversation is exactly what I built it up to be. It was absolutely insightful, and I, I appreciate you coming on. Um, to my audience, if you enjoyed today's episode, please give it a like and share it with someone else you think could benefit from it. Also, check out earlier episodes, especially our episode with Derek Sire that we mentioned earlier because it is an amazing conversation, and that will help support the future creation of great content. Subscribing would be a great idea. Because we've got huge things coming. Next week, I've got uh, Emmy Award-winning rapper and activist JB on. And uh, KOKH, Fox 23, Adam King, news anchor. Um, don't forget to like us. 
on social at Authentic Identity Management, Instagram, Facebook, Threads, and LinkedIn. You can also head over to The Authentic Bruce at YouTube for a podcast video with bonus content and impactful clips from my conversations with these great guests. Finally, if you are struggling to show up as yourself in your content, your work, your family, or your life, I would love to help you. Authentic Identity Management does identity coaching to help you align yourself with the identity you share with the world. It is exhausting to live someone else's life. Live authentically and access the potential that belongs only to you. Contact me on social or email at bruce at authenticidentitymanagement.com for a free 30-minute consultation. That is it for today's episode. Until next time, be yourself and love yourself. Bye.